So last week I uh, shared an image with you that a lot of you resonated with. The done dog, the dog who cannot adult, the dog who has launched a million memes. And so actually I thought today I would um, share another of my favorite memes with you. It's this one from the late, uh, unfortunately no longer active, but completely wonderful webcomic, hyperbole and a half. Originally didn't say this. I feel like doing all the things. I think originally it was clean all the things. And you can find a whole different variety of riffs on this online. Eat all the foods. Consume all the beverages, do all the things. And I think one of the reasons I like this one so much is that it teaches me to laugh at myself, which is something I need on a regular basis. You see, I am both by inclination and habit, something of an enthusiast. I find it really easy to be taken with new things, shiny objects, things that I find very, very compelling. And so I feel that sense of I can do, I feel like doing all the things. And the truth is, even in this message series that's focused on the heart, I want to move it south into the gut right now. One of my other favorite quotes that teaches me to laugh at myself, especially when I just pour myself into something too quickly, is from Nick Hornby, British novelist, High Fidelity. He says, for years, people have been telling me to listen to my gut, go with my gut. And after he recognizes that his gut has laid him astray yet again in his life because he is, like me, such an overenthusiast, he says, I have come to the inescapable conclusion that my gut has shit for brains. It's biologically true. <laughs> Moving back to the heart and without laughter. But still truth, the singer Tiff Merritt speaks something that may speak to your heart as well, too. She says, sometimes my heart is all I got. Sometimes my heart gets in the way. How do we discern that? How do we figure out whether the heart is leading us along the right paths or is leading us astray? And take a cue from one of the traditions that I have not just set my heart on, but that I have set on my heart, which is Buddhism. Buddhism talks about that there are near enemies and far enemies of some of the central virtues of this life. We'll take one, for example, loving kindness. The far enemy, the hostile enemy to loving kindness, is fairly obvious, hatred. Or indifference. And one of the things I found out that's true for me, and perhaps for you, especially if you tend to get enthusiastic about things, is that the near enemy, the trickier enemy in many ways, is enthusiasm. Of wanting to be so excited about something new. To me, this is why... I have picked what is, if you objectively look at it, the most boring spiritual practice that there can possibly be. Sitting and doing nothing for 20 to 30 minutes a day. Just observing. This is what I need. And we had 30 or so people at the mindfulness retreat yesterday. So I think a number of you perhaps needed as well, too. To know what it is to set my heart on sustainable things in sustainable ways. And not just be driven around by the newest, shiniest object. 
and the thing that I am most enthusiastic about at the moment. This new series for the new year is all about what happens when we allow ourselves to be sustainably grounded in the commitments of the heart, in what we love. And here's the thing, right? To set our hearts on something or someone requires choice, but not just the choice for a single time. Not unless we just want to have one commitment after another commitment after another commitment after another commitment after another commitment, and pretty soon we're completely exhausted. Not just sequentially, one after another after another But if what we want is sustainable depth, setting our hearts on what matters to us most is, of course, a function of time. A willingness to look at our lives again and again and again and the commitments that we make and ask ourselves, are these truly reflective of our values and are we living in accord with them? I love that one of my favorite books about the spiritual life says not just we have to live with heart. But are we living this path of our lives with heart on a daily basis in a sustainable way? There are so many different choices facing so many of us. I mean, all I have to do is open up my Facebook feed for two minutes and I will find so many compelling ideas. I will find so many things that they become overwhelming to me that I could just want to dig right into This time to be alive, you maybe heard it quoted this way, that there is now more information that we can find just by opening up our phones that Shakespeare had access to in his entire life. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds true, so we'll go with it. The point is, is that there is so much literally right at our fingertips. And yet, there's that deeper question. Does it help us set our hearts on what will make us truly happy? There's a Hasidic story that I love about not just what we set our hearts on, but what we set literally, figuratively, on our hearts. The story goes like this. A Hasidic master was asked by their disciples, why is it that every day, You ask us when we recite these prayers, when we recite these teachings, when we recite these traditions together, you ask us, set them on your heart and not in your heart. And the great rabbi said, only time and grace can put the essence of these stories in your heart. Here, we recite them and we learn them. And we put these things on our hearts, hoping that someday, when our hearts break, they will fall in. Only time and grace, I agree with that, can allow the things that we set on our hearts to be real, to be sustainably real. And very often it is moments of heartbreak. And loss that get us to pay attention. And we might hope what will fall into our hearts will be truly sustainable. And I want to talk about something heartbreaking today. I don't know the family. I don't know the person's name. Or actually, I've heard about it online. But I'm not going to share it with you. Because there was a student. The fourth student within the last year. 
Downingtown East or associating with Downingtown East High School who took their own life this past week. As I said, I don't know the family. What I do know is that in the last 15 years, in 49 out of 50 states, let that sink in, in 49 out of 50 states, the suicide rate has risen, and dramatically so. The only state it hasn't, between I think it was 99 and 2014, was Nevada. And that's because it went down one percentage point. At moments like these, and I've seen, and I've read from a number of you posting about how heartbreaking this is for you, especially those of you who are parents, asking this question, what can we do? What can be done? In what ways do we need to be stronger, better, kinder, more able to respond when a child is at that point that they feel they have no other choice then but to take their own life and to end their own life. And good things are suggested at times like these, you know, more access to mental health resources in the homes and the schools, more mentoring relationships with caring, trusted adults. We hear a lot more moments like this about the value and the power of resilience and get a message, as I know was sent out this past week from, I think it was the principal of Downingtown East, with the very basic to say, but transformative to realize message, you are not alone. These are all good, necessary things. These are all saving things. But I actually don't think they're enough. I think it's something more elemental. I think it's about the air that we breathe and the water that we're swimming in. I think the challenge of it is, like George Orwell said, to paraphrase what he said many years ago, to see the nose on our own faces requires a constant struggle. What is it that is happening, not just to our kids, but to all of us? There was a piece this past week that I think sheds light from the online magazine Vox, V-O-X. Many of you know it. And it's written by a guy who is a youth pastor in a mainline, which is to say fairly moderate version of uh, the Baptist tradition in North Carolina. And one of the things he does to meaning in meaningful ways connect with the kids that are under his charge that he cares for is they go on retreat together. And very often one of the things he'll do on retreat is open up the space for them to talk about the things that are always there with them, but they feel they don't have permission maybe to talk about in their homes or in their schools. And so he asked a question not too long ago. His name is John Thornton. Reverend Thornton asked a question. What is it uh, about your lives that you feel you, you can't really show or you can't really tell anyone? If you would pick a word, what would that be? And the words I'm going to share you with you right now are kids generated, or they're the words generated just by these kids. This is what they're experiencing. Stressful, complicated, over-involved, full of transitions, anxiety, uncertainty, pressure, and exhaustion. 
stressful, complicated, over-involved, full of transitions, anxiety, uncertainty, pressure, and exhaustion. He says, by the way, you can't just blame social media. <laughs> Amplifies it. doesn't help. It means that any time their, their teachers can contact them with grades, <laughs> with an assignment that's going to be done, it means they can be reached at any moment. That doesn't help. He says there's something underneath that urge to have to be in touch with the kids all the time, that these are the way we've structured so many of us, our relationship with our kids in terms of their schooling and their development. And by the way, schooling and development are not necessarily the same thing. We know that, right? What Dr., excuse me, what Reverend Thornton has identified is that these kids feel so much pressure, constant, unrelenting, Because we feel it as adults too. Because we have economic anxieties. Because we worry about if we are living the life that wants to live in us. Now just to offer a grace note of hope to the extent that those who are newer to the systems that we live in, especially when those systems do not serve us, are so much better at pointing out the flaws in those systems that for those of us who are like, we got to see the noses on our face. He says, Reverend Thornton does, I find some measure of hope in the fact that the kids I've worked with and the others I've talked to seem to know that something is really, really askew. That their lives ought not be like this. I found that they want people to take them seriously without adding pressure. They want a bigger and better story to be a part of. They want a better world to live in. He concludes, I just hope that they're not too exhausted to live into that better world by the time those of us who care about them gain the power to give it to them. And that's the only thing I'd correct about what he says. I don't think it's ours to give. I think it is to be created by all of us. I hear so many stories that are variations on this theme. And there are studies that will talk about why are the suicide rates rising so dramatically in this culture. I think Reverend Thornton is pointing at a prime culprit. How often do we hear it? I hear it all the time. I see the hashtag, got to level up. (laughs) Got to be your best self. That can be really toxic. If we get the sense that what we're living with is our lives under constant evaluation. Maybe what we all need is the opposite. To level down. (laughs) That achievement is wonderful and so much of my life has been about it. But what I have learned most profoundly about my life is if there's not something larger, a better story that holds that achievement, it's not worth much at all. To be seen, to be truly seen, beyond being evaluated, beyond the pressure that we are under, is to give ourselves the opportunity. And again, this is why for me, I have picked the most boring spiritual practice there is. To take a second and a third and repeated look at the life that is in me beyond judgment or evaluations or conditioning. And to learn to greet that life with an open heart regardless of what is there. What happens at the largest levels of our society happens at the smallest levels. 
Yes, we're all individuals, but individuals only come about in the first place because of our relationships. And so because of my two professions, I believe, and we put it in ministry, there is a connection between the prophetic, between the structures we live in, between the large questions of justice and who counts and who doesn't, and the pastoral. It's one of the most false choices that exists within ministry as long as I've been a minister. You've got to be prophetic or you've got to be pastoral. B.S. I don't think you could be one without the other. In social work, we put it this way. There's a connection between the large policy questions of macro and the small, intimate living of our lives in the micro. These things are connected, and I think sometimes that's why it is so hard to see the realities that we are swimming in and breathing every single day. And to get outside of ourselves and to ask that question that Reverend Thornton says, can we just envision a better story? Is this really the best way we can live our lives? These are huge questions. I don't know how to answer them entirely. I do know that they're found in community. I do know that there have to be pockets of loving resistance to the powers and principalities in this world that reduce us only to what we are good for. I got a reminder of this this past week. My wife and I are kind of doing a deep clean, not because we've watched that show on Netflix that we're supposed to watch, whatever that show is. Um, But we just, what? Um, When I saw this, Folks, you know, well, maybe you don't. I'm just about to disappoint you or just get you angry at me. I am not an Eagles fan. I am a Giants fan. Thank you. And, you know, the Eagles are a thrilling team to watch right now. I wish you all luck this afternoon. Um, But this reminded me of Super Bowl 25. I don't know how many of you are Super Bowl fans. I don't know how many of you remember seeing this Super Bowl. Uh, There's three words that for a Giants fan like myself just gets me kind of giddy. These three words, Norwood, wide, right. (laughs) For me as a Giants fan coming of age, that was my double doink. <laughs> boink, boink. And here's the thing. If you Google Norwood, it will automatically fill in Norwood wide right when he missed the field goal that won the Giants, the Super Bowl. And I love winning. I mean, it's better than losing, right? <laughs> but, you know, imagine being Scott Norwood. All this is to say, do we hold just a little bit of space in our hearts for Cody Parkey? Because <laughs> Parkey double doink is going to be what it is for years to come when we Google his name. Winning is wonderful and not inevitable and not always. And we live in a hyper-competitive society that so often evaluates our worth and our merit only according to this metric of whether we're winning. Y'all know who this is? So one of my questions for you today, the question I'd like to leave you with is, which Freddie Mercury do you want to be? There's the Freddie Mercury of under pressure. And there's also the Freddie Mercury of we are the champions. 
which is a stirring song, which is an anthemic song, which is, if you read the lyrics, a terrible song. No time for losers. This is an anti-universalist song, people. This is hostile to our tradition. We are the champion. No time for losers. Now, that leaves most of us out most of the time. And it gets worse. It gets worse. It's not just a sad song. It's a mean song. I've had sand kicked in my face. It's been humiliated. And what's his response is to become a winner and start kicking sand in other people's faces. <laughs> the better story that Reverend Thornton's kids were pointing at. The better story of what's going on here with so much self-harm. I think we're learning the limits of individual resilience. Individual resilience is so limiting if all we do with our newfound strength is strengthen the system that harmed in the first place. There has to be something bigger and better. And that's the Freddie Mercury. Obviously, I've got a, I've got a horse in this game <laughs> or a dog in this hunt. The Freddie Mercury who I want to encourage you to trust. The love such an old-fashioned word, Freddie Mercury. Love dares you to care for the people on the, the edge of the night, Freddie Mercury. Love dares you, dares us, dares me to change our way of caring about ourselves. This is a better story. It is a bigger story. And most profoundly, it is the story of our universalism, of our traditions, which has something much better to offer the world and offer ourselves other than we are the champions. It's a basic definition. There is a love so special that says we do not need to be special to be loved. This is actually a fairly controversial thing I said a number of years ago. I think that's why I like it. <laughs> because there's such pressure on us to be special. I've actually had people get a little angry at me about this one. What do you mean I'm not special? I'm not saying you're not special. I'm not saying you're not gifted. I'm not saying you're not wonderful. I'm not saying you're not talented. I'm saying that your capacity to be loved has nothing to do with how special, gifted, or talented you are. Write that down and make a tattoo out of it. Because if it does, then only the people who are champions all the time will be lovable. And that's not me. And from the truth that you have shared with me over the years, that's not you either. May we set on our hearts this truth that there is a love so special we don't need to be special to be loved. And especially at those moments that our hearts break. May what is written on our hearts with time and grace and love fall into our hearts. Become real for all of us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Pray with me. The love that is so special, or as the great prophet Van Morrison put it, the love that loves to love, that is here, that is us, that is without conditions, even though we as human beings love to set conditions of worthiness, of productivity, all around it. 
And we treat that love as a scarce thing. So that maybe if we're going all right, we can think we can maybe hoard it. But that is not the nature of true love. May we allow ourselves to rest in, rest on, rest with, and live from this birthright belovedness. Amen.